I'm going to make him an awfully gambler for you. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. He's looking at you, kid. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Oh, I've been thinking. Well, what do you want to do that for? Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. They call me Mr. Tibbs. Welcome to 99 Years, 100 Films, the podcast where we look at every winner of the Best Picture Academy Award in release order and see why the film's so highly regarded. This time, we are looking at The Great Ziegfeld. I'm Trey Hooks, and with me as always is my partner, Blaine Dowler. Hey, good morning, Trey. Morning, Blaine. The Great Ziegfeld was directed by Robert Z. Leonard, written by William Anthony McGuire, and was released on September 4th, 1936. Why don't you go ahead and give us the uh, plot breakdown for this one, Blaine? This one is a biopic, like the Academy seems to love. So, Florence Ziegfeld Jr. was a stage producer who did a lot of things on sort of the vaudeville circuit. And this is a story of the major part of his life, from when his career really started to get going to make the mark, right through to the end. So in it, we see him falling in love and getting married. We see him go through several boom and bust cycles where he is at the top of his game or where he's virtually bankrupt because of the risks he's taken and the extravagant lifestyle he tends to lead. We see that he's not necessarily faithful to his wife. They don't really cross the line to say he's been unfaithful. But this is also 1936, about a recently deceased real person who would have been known to many of the stars who were in it. So they may not have quite crossed that line and made it be clear if he was. They may not have chosen to represent that part of his life accurately. But that's really what it's about. It's the career of one of the most extravagant stage producers in vaudeville history. And we see him and his sort of lead competitors where Ziegfeld is played by William Powell. Billy Burke is played by Myrna Loy. That's one of his love interests. Anna Held is the other, played by Louise Rayner. And I'd say the other really notable and prominent actor is Frank Morgan as Jack Billings. And there's other cast members we can mention later, but their roles are not as prominent sure, sure. as those ones are. And uh, when you mentioned Myrna Loy playing Billy Burke, that name may resonate for a lot of our listeners. Billy Burke was an actress in and of herself, most famous for playing Linda in The Wizard of Oz. Yes, there's actually a fair amount of crossover between this and the cast of The Wizard of Oz. So the aforementioned Frank Morgan would play the wizard, and the so far unmentioned Ray Bolger, who plays himself in this film, uh, would go on to play the Scarecrow in The Wizard of Oz. So there's some definite overlap here. I mentioned at the closing of our last episode that I had a lot to say about this one. And it's what I wanted to talk about was primarily about the type of film. You, you mentioned it as a biopic, and it is that. But back in my video store days, this was always classified and categorized as a musical. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the state of the musical at this point in time in film history. Uh, 
because we're in the middle of, I feel like a transition period. And in addition to telling the life of uh, Flo Ziegfeld, the film also captures that transition, I, I, I believe. Um, up to this point, the most successful musicals have been coming out from Warner Brothers and RKO. Warner Brothers was doing the Ruby and Keeler musicals, which were the let's put on a show type of musical. There's a Broadway producer, there's a showgirl, and there's either a composer or a chorus boy in some kind of financial straits, and they're all working to put together a musical production on Broadway. And the production that they're trying to put on is always a Ziegfeld Follies type of production to where there's not so much a plot, but a book of music with a theme with elaborate set pieces. The RKO musicals are the Astaire and Rogers musicals, which have more of a plot, typically a romantic comedy type plot, to where the music's in aid of the plot, but isn't a show-stopping number for its own sake. So when the Warner Brothers musicals were doing those elaborate Busby Berkeley uh, show-stopping dance numbers, they were trying to emulate the Ziegfeld Follies. Yeah, and I can see that, because this really does set up how popular these were and how extravagant they are. That's one of the things that really impressed me watching it. I was not expecting to see the kind of stage production they were showing here. Because I've seen a couple of modern stage productions, and they don't touch the level of production that, that Ziegfeld was apparently putting together in the 20s and 30s. No, there's, there's been a recent Broadway production of King Kong, and much has been made of the animatronic Kong in that production. But for his time, Ziegfeld was doing similar things, that huge rotating staircase, to be doing that at the tail end of the 20s and the early 30s. Yeah, that's, that's very impressive. So, yeah, that is definitely the format of the film. So it's, it's that mixture of biopic and the stage musical, because we'll, we'll see a chunk of his life, and then they'll show us a, a good chunk of the show he put together. And then it's back to his life and then back to the show that he put together. So we're consistently getting both ends, which makes for an interesting blend that I think will factor into one of the discussions we have coming up here. Now, if we go through all the nominations and wins that this movie had. So Louise Rayner won for Best Actress. Seymour Felix won as Best Dance Director. And Hans Stromberg, the producer, won for Outstanding Production. It was also nominated, but didn't win, in the categories Best Original Story, Best Film Editing, Best Director, and Best Art Direction. The other categories of the year, it was not nominated for Best Actor, which honestly surprised me, because frankly, watching it, I felt that if it didn't have the power of William Powell and Frank Morgan in those lead roles, it wouldn't be half the movie it became. I, I agree. I, 
Was William Powell ever nominated? Uh, yeah, he was actually nominated in this year for My Man Godfrey. Okay. So there was at least one nomination for him. I kind of want to see that because I'd really like to see the movie that said, oh no, this is the performance we're going to nominate him for given how he did it here. Now, it was not eligible for Best Adaptation. That award went to the story of Louis Pasteur. Paul Muni also won Best Actor for Story of Louis Pasteur in this year. For the art direction, they lost to Dodsworth. I, I, I just, I can't comprehend that loss. I, I, I've actually seen Dodsworth, and it's not a bad film, but there's nothing special about it from an art direction perspective that, you know, makes the film pop. It's a transcontinental dramedy, I, I guess, for lack of a better word. Cinematography, maybe, but not art direction. Uh, maybe Great Ziegfeld didn't get the nomination because people felt, well, they weren't doing the art direction. They were just reproducing the art direction done for the stage. I could see that. That's a good point. Uh, in terms of the other awards that year, Best Assistant Director went to Jack Sullivan for Charge of the Light Brigade. Best Cinematography went to Anthony Adverse. Best Director went to Frank Capra for Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. Best Film Editing also went to Anthony Adverse, and Ralph Dawson in particular. The live-action short subject, Color, which this clearly wasn't eligible for, went to Warner Brothers for Give Me Liberty. The one real live-action short subject went to Hal Roach for Board of Education, that's B-O-R-E-D. The two real short subject went to The Public Pays from MGM. You already mentioned that this lost Best Original Story to Story of Louis Pasteur. Best Scoring, again, Anthony Adverse. The Best Cartoon Short Subject went to The Country Cousin, at Walt Disney. The Best Song went to Swing Time for Dorothy Fields and Jerome Kern. Best Sound Recording was San Francisco for Douglas Shearer. Supporting Actor was Walter Brennan for Come and Get It. Supporting Actress was Gail Sondergaard for Anthony Adverse. And obviously this one outstanding production, that's why we're discussing it, but it was up against A Tale of Two Cities, Anthony Adverse, Dodsworth, Libeled Lady, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, Romeo and Juliet, San Francisco, The Story of Louis Pasteur, and Three Smart Girls. So are, are there any of those, we know that you've seen Dodsworth, which other ones on that list have you seen? For preparation for the podcast, I've seen Dodsworth and Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. I have in the past seen A Tale of Two Cities in San Francisco, but not in recent enough memory that I could compare them. Okay. Yeah, and I still haven't been able to track down a copy of Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. That's one I was hunting for. Uh, I did watch Labeled Lady just a couple of weeks ago in preparation for the podcast. And there's a couple other movies I watched that have sort of stood the test of time better than this film according to the IMDb ranks, but were not nominated at the time. So of the nominees, I've only seen Libel Lady and The Great Ziegfeld, but I've also seen Modern Times, Fury, and The Petrified Forest, as well as Bullets or Ballots, but that one wasn't recently. I've seen Fury as well, and I also watched My Man Godfrey for this. Yeah, watching it, it's... I fully understand why The Great Ziegfeld was nominated for Best Picture. 
it is impressive and it also gives opportunities a chance to see productions that they wouldn't have normally seen. I mean, this came out in a time when stage entertainment was a much more prominent form of entertainment than it is today. And as they make a point of saying in the movie, Ziegfeld wouldn't take his shows on tour. It was Broadway only, but he wasn't traveling and he wasn't sort of handing them off to anyone else. He wanted to make sure that it was always top-notch and he was right there to control it. So for a lot of the audience, this was their only opportunity to see the Ziegfeld shows that they'd heard so much about. So that's going to be a plus for it. These days when, you know, I've heard of the Ziegfeld Follies, but I didn't feel like I was really missing out on something recently. It wasn't like I wanted to see the stage show and couldn't. I found that the pacing was off because it would, you know, Mm -hmm. go from a high-paced, kind of frantic part of his life to a slow and extravagant stage production with the rotating staircase or something similar, and then completely shift gears again. So I'm not saying it was improper to include the stage productions in here, but when modern audiences sit down for a three-hour film and they spend two hours of it with a pretty fast-paced life story, and one hour watching stage productions that are of a very different style, I understand why the rankings that this movie has received and the ratings it's had on IMDb, Letterboxd, and Rotten Tomatoes in recent years have not been as strong as you would expect from something that wins Best Picture. That, and as you mentioned, it's a, it's a biopic. It's a biopic about a non-controversial figure. I mean, he may have been in entertainment circles at the time, but certainly not today. When you look at, you know, three of the films that lead the pack in the top ten, Modern Times, My Man Godfrey, and Mr. D Goes to Town, are all social commentary comedies, um, which, mm-hmm. you know, you can pull some themes from it, but front and center, there's no real commentary here. Yeah, that's that's true. And you look a little bit deeper in those top five, or even just look at the, the top three on Letterboxd, that's modern time is my man Godfrey and Fury. And Fury is by no means a comedy, but there is social commentary front and center in that one as well. So that one I was actually very impressed by. And I haven't seen my man Godfrey, but looking at the nominations I've seen and looking at modern times in Fury, they set the bar pretty high. So I'm trying to understand what it was that Academy voters saw in the other films that I haven't seen yet that caused them to nominate those over Modern Times and Fury. I, I don't know. If, if, I were, <clears throat> if I were to pick one out of all of the highest ranked in Modern Times, Fury's probably the one that I would vote best film for the year. As would I, quite frankly. That's, yeah, that's my pick for top drama of the year in the top overall film. And I would have no problem suggesting Libel Lady as the top comedy. It, I, I know you mentioned you hadn't seen My Man Godfrey yet, but if you've... I, I love William Powell, but he has a type. In, in many ways, he was kind of Cary Grant without the English accent uh, for his era. So it, if you've seen any of the Philo Vance films or The Thin Man, you know what you're getting in. Mm-hmm. My man Godfrey, he's the 
witty, wisecracking, wiser-than-everyone-else-around-him archetype, uh, which he's not here. So I don't know if he got the nomination based off of that for playing more to type. It it could be. That happens. So, Which I recommend My Man Godfrey, but I, I agree with you. His performance in Ziegfeld was stronger. I, I did want to also just highlight Myrna Loy. Uh, of course, you mentioned she played Billy Burke. She was in this. I was thinking about this last night. There are other screen couples that I can think of that have as much chemistry. You know, Hepburn and Tracy, um, Bogart and Bacall come to mind. But I cannot think of an an on-screen pairing as successful that has as much chemistry that were not romantically linked. Every time they're on the screen together, you can tell they're comfortable with each other. You can tell that they get each other's beats, and it's just seamless. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they do work really well as an on-screen couple, even if they were not an off-screen couple. You, know, the, you, you really do believe that these are two people who would be together, which is not necessarily the case with other romantic comedies. Sometimes it's it's hard to see any superficial or non-superficial reasons, sorry, for couples to be together. You'll often have, you know, your compelling, charismatic lead actor, but that male character doesn't necessarily do a lot to romance the female. It's just, oh, yeah, they're generally awesome, so of course all women fall in love with them, and the women are often written to just, okay, be there and stand around and look pretty. They're not really well-defined, but here possibly because it was based on real human beings. There are two fully realized characters here. And as we mentioned, she's playing Billy Burke. You alluded to Ziegfeld's infidelities, which aren't really highlighted here. That's probably due to Burke's involvement. Uh, She wanted to play herself. I, I, I think MGM made the right call. She was probably too senior to play herself at the age at which she was supposed to be playing herself, if that makes sense. Um, she, she, would, she was a good 15 years older than the point in her lifespan or her lifetime that she was supposed to be portraying. But uh, the stock market crash devastated most of uh, Ziegfeld's fortune. And as a result, uh, Billy Burke, who was in semi-retirement and was a Broadway actress, went into film production to settle his debts. Some of those films were things like um, Dinner at Eight. Others were where she was managing the rights to his productions and his story. Uh, This was a result of that. And she was a technical advisor on the film. Okay. Yeah, I can see that because I know they had a lot of the people who were really involved actually involved. So, yeah, that, that could be why they, they pulled back on the infidelity. It was because she didn't want that highlighted. Because I, I think at the time especially, if a man wasn't faithful to his wife, a lot of the public attitudes would be that, well, the wife wasn't doing enough to satisfy the husband. Whereas I think nowadays there's a much greater understanding that, no, the, the husband or you know whoever is not being faithful 
is largely at fault. I mean, I am of the opinion that infidelity is never justified. If the relationship is not working, you either fix it or end it before you move on. That wasn't necessarily the attitude back then. It was, you know, if the man cheated, it was the woman's fault. If right. the woman cheated, it was the woman's fault, which is not an attitude I'll ever be able to get behind. Yeah, so this hasn't aged as well as some of the other nominees. As we mentioned, the top three are Modern Times, My Man Godfrey, and then Fury or Mr. Deeds Goes to the Town, or even Dodsworth uh, showed up at number three on the IMDb when I checked it out, compiling the stats in advance with Mr. Deeds at number four. Running through the rankings on IMDb and Letterboxd, they both agree that Modern Times was number one and My Mad Godfrey was number two. Of the, nominate, of the nominated films, sorry, A Tale of Two Cities didn't have enough votes to really register, but it does have an average rating of 7.8 out of 10, which would put it, you know, third or fourth on the list of nominees with the IMDb. We've got Dodsworth, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, Labeled Lady coming in on the IMDb at 3, 4, and 6, or 4, 5, and 6 on Letterboxd. We've got San Francisco coming in at 20 or 22, then the story of Louis Pasteur, Three Smart Girls, and then The Great Ziegfeld comes in as the eighth highest rated nominee out of the 10 nominees for the year, with Romeo and Juliet and Anthony Adverse coming later. Based on the other ad, uh, awards given this year, it sounds like Anthony Adverse might be a very beautiful movie but not necessarily an effectively told story. And there might also be some difference in tastes, because we've noticed at this time, the era really seems to favor sweeping epics or true stories in a way that maybe modern audiences don't respond to, possibly because Flo Ziegfeld would have been much more prominent in the public consciousness when this was made than now. I mean, we're talking about a major stage producer when stage producers were much more significant who had fairly recently passed away. And looking at the, the ratings, looking at it on Rotten Tomatoes, out of the critics, it's got a 64% on the tomato meter. So of 18 critics, there were 18 considered fresh and 10 considered rotten for an average score of 6.31 out of 10. Whereas the audience scores, which for some reason are out of five, I don't know why they use different scales, the audiences are giving it 3.29 out of five, which is actually a slightly higher average if you look at it, right? That would be 6.58 out of 10. So it's a higher average rating than the critics, but a lower tomato meter. It's at 50% instead of 64. So that's got to be a small number of people giving it high ratings, which skews the mean more than the median. And that's out of 2,736 votes. I may be getting a little ahead of myself into the who would you re recommend this to, but when you look at the subject matter and you look at the cast, very few people are going to remember <clears throat> excuse me, who Flo Ziegfeld was. Very few people are going to remember the people that he made a star who were highlighted here. Um, you know, it, you often hear about Will Rogers in 
in American history class as kind of one of the first American satirists, but very few people in our generation know who Fanny Bryce is or Eddie Cantor, and if it wasn't for The Wizard of Oz, the same would probably be said of Ray Bolger. I I see this being a film that if modern audiences see it, they're seeing it because they've got a checklist of like William Powell Myrna Loy movies, and this is on that checklist. Yeah, or like in our case, the the best picture winners. Right. Um, And even people who were prominent, but were not necessarily performers in the traditional sense. Nat Pendleton plays Sandow the Strongman, and I've got, you know, collections of early Edison films. So the, the early films before people started using films to tell stories, and they were more animated postcards or novelties, they would sometimes have a couple minutes of vaudeville acts, and Sandow was one of those, because he was that popular. He was the big strongman of the day. And that was another one that Ziegfeld found. So yeah, we we don't have that same personal connection, and I do think that modern audiences who sit down for a three-hour movie and spend an hour of it watching slow-paced stage productions that they're not necessarily intrinsically interested in. I mean, maybe this is me projecting onto a greater proportion of the audience than there would be. I just found that pacing was disruptive enough that while I appreciate and respect the film, it would not have been my choice for best picture. I agree with you. I rattled off some of the... I I was talking earlier about the Powell and Keeler musicals. Those are so hard for me to get through because... The characters are engaging, and Dick Powell's a good actor, and Ruby Keeler's a fine actress, and then you often have folks like Joan Blondell and others supporting, but then there's a music number, and the movie stops for five minutes, and and, and that was on repeat here. I would say it's probably also of interest to fans of the musical genre, even though it's a different type of musical. You know, when we think musical today, we think the MGM musical. And while this wasn't the first, this was the first Mm -hmm. prominent one that started that trend of making MGM known for big, lavish musicals. Yeah, I can quite easily see that. I'll also throw out there, you mentioned Nat Pendleton, and I wasn't even thinking of this until you mentioned him up. This is the third film, at least that I'm aware of, that he, William Powell, and Myrna Loy have all been in, to, in together. The, the, he was in uh, the first Thin Man film, The Thin Man, and then there's a film that, uh, Manhattan Melodrama, that's a love triangle between Powell, Gable, and Loy, and he has a supporting role in that as well. All right, so let's, let's head into maybe the, the end of this film then because we have something different we're going to do at the end of this piece so what would you have chosen as the the best picture for the year fury yeah i would say the same and for those who who are unfamiliar with it it's directed by fritz long who is easily one of my favorite directors at this point he he was an austrian director who came to hollywood because he disapproved of the Nazis, but he'd already made his mark with uh, the film industry in Germany with 1927's Metropolis and 1931's M. 
both of which are very much worth watching. Metropolis shaped science fiction in general pretty significantly from that point on with a robot that very clearly inspired the design of C-3PO in the Star Wars films with you know a major dystopian epic. And M was Peter Lorre's first starring role that launched his career. And it, it also did a lot of things that Citizen Kane would later be credited with inventing. But those, the same problems like having a camera move through a window that has a, a physical glass pane in it, that happens in M nine years before Citizen Kane. There are ceilings on the sets in M nine years before Citizen Kane. I'm not saying that Orson Welles doesn't deserve credit for the innovation, given the way international films worked at the time. I have no reason to believe that the Citizen Kane team even had the opportunity to see M prior to making their film. But it, it's not only innovative in terms of the way that movies are made, it's the only movie I can think of where at the end, you know, I'll, it's common to have suspense where you're wondering, are the police going to get here in time? M is the only movie where I found myself wondering, do I want the police to get here in time? It, it's, it has a really innovative parallel story structure that's easy to follow. It, it is, yeah. Um, just the basic premise of M, there is a child killer because they... Censors at the time wouldn't allow the character to do more than kill children, but the filmmakers wanted them to be doing more. He's on the loose. The police have no lead, so the police are cracking down on everything. And these are, you know, police just before the Nazi era, so they're not well respected by filmmakers. But because they're cracking down on everything, organized crime are saying, okay, this child killer is really cramping our style. If the police find him, he'll just lawyer up and claim insanity and, and you know, not get the punishment he deserves. The mob is not okay with what he's doing to kids either. They're more businessmen. So they just decide, we'll take matters into our own hands. We will track this child killer down, and we will deal with him our way. So, definitely worth watching. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, that, that, that's the part that I love. There's definitely an undercurrent of, okay, we're, we're pickpockets and pimps, and hitmen. But we have our limits, and this guy's outside of our limits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's that's where Fritz Lang really made his mark, and then Fury is another social commentary digging pretty deeply into mob mentality and the impact that injustice can have on people, and what might force you know, a, a good citizen to turn bad. And this is, just to give you some idea of the credit and the, the kind of person Fritz Lang was, I mean, he had his flaws, but in 1936, he gave Spencer Tracy second building because he felt the top building was earned by the female lead. And that's, it's still more rare than it should be today. Right. Over 80 years later. So it was Fritz Long, who said, no, Sylvia Sidney gets top billing, and Spencer Tracy gets second billing. Then it's also filled with other notable names. Yeah, so that would be my pick as well. So this is similar to, I believe, the year uh, Cavalcade won. 
watch the great Zegfeld just to see what we were talking about, but then to see a really great film from this year, go watch Fury. Yeah. Yeah, that would be my pick as, as number one, even though Letterboxd and IMDb are putting Chaplin's Modern Times above it. Uh, so the final point we do every week, or every month, I should say, is who would we recommend this to? I, I think we've already touched on it. Uh, Myrna, Myrna Loy and William Powell fans and uh, people who are interested in uh, the history of either early Broadway or the MGM musicals or folks listening or folks watching along with us. Yeah, I, it'd be the same. Cause it, so we've got two hours of a great biopic and an hour of an accurate representation of pretty impressive stage productions, but they don't blend very well. So if you're interested in Ziegfeld or as you said, Powell Noy, because I mean, really, it's the performances that make this stand out to me. If you had lesser performers than Powell and Frank Morgan in here as Flo and Jack, I don't think this would have cracked the nomination list, let alone one. I, I think that's just where it plays out. So, yeah, come see it for that. And now the last piece that we're adding here, and we'll be adding it again periodically, with 100 films to review, we've decided that every 10 films, we are going to you know, select our top pick of those 10 best picture winners as the best of that first block of the Academy Awards. And then when our final episode comes in 90 months time, <laughs> we won't just be picking, you know, the best of those 10, but then we'll look at our 10 picks and say, yep, here is the best of the first 100 best picture winners. So let's do a quick review of the eligible films. In the first year, we had the only two silent films to win for a long time. There's now three. But we've got Wings, the World War I pick about the pilots, and Sunrise, A Tale of Two Humans, which was a well-told drama, but had elements that rubbed us both the wrong way in terms of what it was representing as healthy relationships. Then the Broadway Melody, All Quiet on the Western Front, Cimarron, Grand Hotel, which was really the first big all-star cast film. Cavalcade, It Happened One Night, Mutiny on the Bounty, and The Great Siegfeld. So, would you like to go first, Trey? I'll, I'll go first. For me, it's all quiet on the Western Front. I, I, I think I mentioned back when we recorded that episode, I, I literally had a whoa, what did I just watch reaction when I finished watching that film? There are several other great films, even in uh, this 10. And at first I thought maybe my reaction was based off of that was a fresh watching for me. Grand Hotel, it happened one night. Both of those I've uh, seen before. But I have recently watched a film that I've seen before and had that reaction again for that film. So it's it's not just that it was a, a fresh viewing. So j just wonderful characters, um, the uniqueness of being told from what most people would have viewed as the enemy's perspective, and then that ending. Yeah. Uh, when we discussed Mutiny on the Bounty last week, I said 
my pick was really down to two. And it was between All Quiet on the Western Front and Mutiny on the Bounty. And ultimately, I've got to give it to All Quiet on the Western Front as well. Not by huge margin, but yeah, that one does come out on top because Mutiny on the Bounty was entertaining, but you the you described it well. The impact that All Quiet has on the viewer is not something that we see very often at all. Yeah, I can't think of another movie that's really hit me the way that movie hit me. Even in recent years, there are very few that produce that kind of emotional response. And not just in payoff. I mean, probably the, the strongest emotions I've had lately were from Avengers Endgame, but that's also because it's really paying off. You know, it's like a great season finale of must-see television. They're, they're pulling together 10 or 12 years worth of 22 films in that one. But that's a completely fictional world that I'm just invested in. All Quiet hits as hard, but it doesn't have 12 years and 21 other films to suck you in and pull you in from. And especially in my case, you know, 50 or more years of comics that I was already invested in before the movies even started. All Quiet really has to start from scratch and it nails it. And like you said, picking the quote-unquote other as the perspective and humanizing them is a big part of it. Our, our friend Paul Spataro often speaks about the, the difference between watching for enjoyment and watching critically. And I, I, I try to time my watch, the watching of our films. I don't always succeed, but I, I try to time it so that it's fresh so that I'm not watching and then rewatching and then rewatching uh, again. So there's always that often there's a little part of my brain that's a little distance that's running analysis while I'm watching. And as you know, I have a couple of younger kids, so I'm I'm not even always watching the entire movie in a single sitting, maybe 30 minutes at, at a block. But uh, there are still films that can just suck you in and you lose all track of time and you know that when you're finished watching it you've had an experience. We've talked about Fury. Fury was similar to me. The The film that I alluded to that I had seen before that still had that impact on me was Casablanca. Uh, all Quiet on the Western Front was another one of those films. Yeah. Yeah, it just that's one. If you're only going to watch one of the top ten movies from the first decade, that's the one I would pick. Okay, now we can cut this part out if you're not interested. Do we want to do bottom picks as well? We can. I'm fine with that. Okay. All right. So in that case, we will leave that question in the final edit. So what would be your pick for the, the weakest of these, or maybe the Academy's biggest mistake from this decade? I'm going to go back and look and see what else was nominated at the time. I I, I have my answer, but it, neither you nor I had seen enough from the 28-29 year to really compare it to anything, but broad, the Broadway melody was really weak. It Just if you go through on Wikipedia or Letterboxd or IMDb, any, any of them, and look at, you know, what were the top grossing films of the past 10 years that we've covered? What were um, 
the highest-ranked musicals. Broadway Melody would come at the bottom of the list. It, it has some of these Ziegfeld-type, um, the movie stops numbers. The leads weren't very engaging. I, the Broadway Melody. Yeah, for in my case, going through the letterboxed ratings I gave them at the time, Broadway Melody, Simmerin, and Cavalcade are tied for having the lowest score that I've assigned. I am going to, to lean towards saying my the one I was least satisfied by was Cavalcade, simply because while you're right that the Broadway melody was very weak, that was the first time they were really trying to figure out how to do musicals, and they weren't focused on story. So the technical challenge they had of doing musicals very well and having sound in all scenes, which was still new, I'm willing to give them a bit of the pass on how weak the story was just because they were really pushing emerging technology. Whereas by the time we get to Cavalcade, they weren't pushing new technologies. It wasn't that much different from Cimarron. And that's part of the issue. They were, Cimarron and Cavalcade were both sweeping epics of one family over years. And Cimarron did it better and Cimarron did it first. It felt like Cavalcade was. It was like the, the, the cheap knockoff. So when, you know, we, we've mm-hmm. seen that in the past, like, you know, when something like Die Hard is a sleeper hit, people try to come up with other movies like Die Hard. And some, you know, sometimes you get a Die Hard 2, which is based on a novel that was not based on the same characters as Die Hard whatsoever. But it was similar enough we could put that together quickly and cash in on the Die Hard brand. I, I think it was Under Siege that literally had on the movie poster, it's Die Hard on a Boat. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's, you know, Speed 2, which was Speed on a Boat. There's just so many knockoffs. And to me, that's what Cavalcade felt like. Now, I know they're both adapted mm-hmm. novels. It could be that Cavalcade came first. You know, I, people are familiar with the novels, maybe screaming at their podcasts. Like, I was screaming at the people who said Lord of the Rings was just a blatant Harry <laughs> Potter knockoff when those movies came out. Because, yeah, some people say, well, it's a derivative, and we see all this stuff in all the other fantasies. Well, yeah, that's where it started. Um, same with people making those complaints about John Carter, not realizing that it's based on novels that invented the genre it's a part of. So Cavalcade may be the same. I haven't dug into it, but even so, to me, it didn't feel like it deserved Best Picture, especially not compared to other films from the year. That was the 18-month window with the most competitive era that we've seen. And I just don't think it belonged at the top of the list. I agree. And taste is taste. For me, Broadway Melody was the worst movie. But but I did scroll to the 32-33 year. I... With with Broadway Melody, I don't know what to compare it to because I haven't seen any of the other four films. I can't think of a film that I have seen. I I have not seen State Fair, and I have not seen She Done Him Wrong. I saw everything else for the 32-33 year, and everything else is a better film than Cavalcade. Yeah, I've seen and rated eight movies that came out in that year, and... Yeah, She Done Him Wrong was a better film. The Invisible mm-hmm. Man was a better film. King Kong was a better film. 
I'm not even a fan of the Marx Brothers style of comedy, and I would say that Duck Soup was a better film. And The Testament of Dr. Mabusi is also out that year, and that's another Fritz Long film, which is well worth checking out if you haven't seen that either. When we finish, I need to ask you a question about that film. I I think we pretty much are finished. Is it a question you want to... Maybe the listeners have the same question if you want to do it now. I've had a hard time tracking down its predecessor. Do you need to have seen its predecessor to understand the testament of Dr. Mabuse? Uh, no, the, the seeing Dr. Mabuse, the gambler, first, it, it's beneficial, but it's not okay. mandatory. It, it's almost like the, the Evil Dead series where the first one came out but didn't have the level of distribution the second one was going to have, and they knew it. So they did include what you need to know in the sequel because just the the size of the audience they intended to reach was larger than the audience the first one ever reached. And and they knew that going in. Okay, that helps. So, and it's, I I think Dr. Mabusi the Gambler, I, I know I've got both on DVD, but I think the first one might even be old enough to be public domain. Okay. So maybe hard to find on DVD because it's just, it doesn't seem that prominent, but you can legally stream it if you could find someone hosting it. Okay. I'll, I'll check that out. But, yeah. Okay. So those are our top and bottom picks. And then I guess from there, uh, it's just a matter of inviting others to join us next month as we start our second decade which is going to be the the first decade where we've got some guest hosts lined up. We're going to not call them out by name at this point, just in case things go on trying to schedule recordings, because sometimes life happens. But we will start hearing some third voices for select episodes. uh, So people can join us in a month's time for The Life of Emil Zola. Where we finally get to look at a Paul Muni film that actually won. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. After... (laughs) Calling it out as the elephant in the room when it happened one night didn't make it. And, you know, we, we heard going through the awards this time around, the story of Louis Pasteur had a very strong showing with Paul Mooney in the title role. So yes, we've, we've got an interesting decade coming up with Life of Emil Zola, You Can't Take It With You, Gone With the Wind, Rebecca, How Green Was My Valley, Mrs. Miniver, Casablanca, Going My Way, The Lost Weekend, and The Best Years of Our Lives which includes a couple of my personal favorite films of all time and one movie whose success baffles me and is my pick for probably the second most racist film to come from a major Hollywood studio. We're going to have such a great conversation about that one. I, I don't disagree with you, but as someone who was born and raised in Tennessee, I've got a unique perspective on that film. Yeah. Yeah, if I my wife is microphone shy, but that's her all-time favorite film. So if I can't convince her to come on the 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 recording with us, I'll at least try to get her to write some thoughts down that I can bring in. And I'm betting a lot of our listeners will be able to guess exactly which movie that is. If you haven't, well, you'll find out at some point in the next ten months. So I think all we have left to say is thank you for listening. Thanks, everyone. My mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get.
i want some more.